good morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of Titus, Titus chapter 1. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1271. A few weeks ago, we began studying the book of Titus, and we've spent the last many weeks looking at the leadership qualifications that Paul lays out for Titus in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, and Lord willing, this morning we'll finish this section, and so we'll begin reading in verse number 5, and I want to speak for a few minutes today on this subject, leaders worth following. Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. And this is what the Word of God says. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. But hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Steady and stable. If I could give you two words that describe the need for leadership In every area of our lives in the 21st century, it is those two words, steady and stable. And when we think about leadership in the church, the expectation of the congregation should be that when they gather as the people of God, they gather under leadership that is both steady and stable. In other words, the congregation should never wonder what they're going to get and what they're going to experience from their leaders. And so the sum of the emphasis in verses 5 through 9 of Titus chapter 1 is steady and stable leadership. Paul is emphasizing to Titus and to us the personal character and the theological competency of leaders. Because God is more interested in who a leader is than what a leader can do. For the skills of leadership always flow from the character of the leader. And that's why it is so important in these days in which we live, to understand the careful instruction and application of the biblical principles of church leadership. And so in this passage, Paul teaches Titus and us what a congregation should look for in a leader and what one should aspire to be as a leader. 
And our prayer should be in studying this passage that God would give us leaders worth following. So many weeks ago in verse 5 and in verse 7, we looked at the call for leaders worth following. And then we began in verses 6 to 8 to look at the character of leaders worth following. In verse 6, we examined the family qualifications of leaders in the church. In verse 7, we examined the must-not personal qualifications of leaders in the church. And now this morning in verse 8, we're going to examine the must-be personal qualifications for leaders in the church. And in verse 8, Paul teaches us that the absence of the negative in the life of a leader is not enough. In verse 8, Paul teaches us that an elder is to provide a godly example for others in his relationships and in his conduct to show that the gospel is real. The gospel is powerful, and the gospel is able to make a difference in our personal lives. Therefore, an elder must be someone the church can follow in the way he treats other people and in the way he lives before God and before the congregation. Now, you will notice in verse number 8 that the qualities that must be in an elder's life are not extreme and they're not stunning. Rather, they're very basic. Thomas Schreiner said the list may not amaze us, but churches that have such steady and stable leaders are very grateful. So what must be in an elder's life? Number one. Verse 8, he must be hospitable. It literally means to be a lover of strangers. Guthrie says it implies a real devotion to the welfare of others. And so in the first century, hospitality was a practical expression of love. It was not a source of entertainment. And Paul is teaching us that when hospitality is practiced... The beauty and the credibility of the gospel are put on full display because a hospitable leader opens both his heart and his home to others. He gives practical help to anyone who is in need, whether it's a friend or a stranger, whether it's a believer or an unbeliever, a hospitable leader freely offers his time, his resources, and his encouragement to meet the needs of others. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians in Rome, he taught them that hospitality was the mark of a true Christian. And he taught them that a true Christian would seek to exercise hospitality in their life. And in Romans chapter 12 and verse 13, he said this, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Don't just practice hospitality, Paul said. You should seek out opportunities to practically show hospitality. You should pursue hospitality as a Christian and as a leader. Peter 
said that as we approach the end of all things, Christians should continue to love one another earnestly, and they should show this love by practicing hospitality. And he said this in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And isn't it interesting, friends? That Peter says, when the world is moving toward the end of time, one of the things that should be characteristic above all others in the life of a Christian is that they show hospitality to one another and they do it without grumbling or complaining about doing it. So you open your heart and you open your home to others and you don't say, why did I do that? What was I thinking? No, you open your heart, you open your home, you show love to the stranger, to the alien, to the hurting, to the discouraged, to those who are doing well. You show hospitality because the Bible teaches that as the world moves to the end of all things, the love of many will grow cold. And the antidote to cold love is hospitality. And that's why you show it. And that's why you practice it. And with this qualification, Paul is reminding us that the church does not need leaders who are aloof, who are unapproachable, cold, or detached. That the church needs the exact opposite. The church needs leaders that have a ministry of availability. They're willing to be available and to open their heart and to open their home and to open their lives. Giving of yourself to show hospitality and to care for other people is costly and inconvenient. It requires you to share your life, to give of yourself, to share of your home and your heart. It requires sacrifice and service and a loving spirit. And if you refuse to show hospitality, it is a sign of a lifeless, selfish, loveless Christianity. Oh, friends, I would tell you that the church in the 21st century needs hospitality. The church of God is a family. We need to open our hearts and we need to open our homes to one another to share the joys of life and the sorrows of life, and the needs of life, and the celebrations of life with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We need to open our hearts and our homes and show and practice and seek out hospitality because hospitality provides a great opportunity to have spiritual conversations with non-believers. And above all, in this passage, it is clear that if a leader in the church is inhospitable, he is a poor example of Christian love and care for others. Leaders in the church are to give of themselves sacrificially, lovingly, selflessly for the care of the flock. And you can't lead and care for the flock from a distance. 
shepherds are close to the sheep, and sheep are close to the shepherds. And so you have to ask yourself, do you have an open heart? Do you have an open home? Are you approachable? Are you willing to be inconvenienced? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you willing to give of yourself for others? He must be hospitable. Number two, he must be a lover of good. With this phrase, Paul describes a virtue lover, one who has a passion for that which is good as defined and described by God. And when the Apostle Paul was writing to the Philippian believers, he defined how God defines what is good. And in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8, this is God's definition of what is good. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. This is God's filter to determine what is good. And Paul is teaching us that the priorities and the life of an elder should be shaped by that which is good for himself and by that which is good for others. That an elder should be devoted to all that is good and beneficial. He should be devoted to good food. He should be devoted to good coffee. He should be devoted to good books and to good works and to good music and to good conversations. He should enjoy the blessings that God has given us in this life. And he should promote that which is good among the flock. So you should love what is good. You should have a passion for what is good. You should have a devotion for what is good and for what is good for other people. And this must be a characteristic of a leader's life. To love what is good. Number three, verse eight, self-controlled. It literally means sober-minded. It's describing a sensible man, a prudent man. It, it refers to that which is held in check and restrained. You could literally say that a self-controlled leader is not given to foolish and wild ideas. They're sober-minded, they're sensible, they're prudent. A self-controlled man is a man who has an accurate and balanced view of life. Both in his judgments and in his actions, he lives with wisdom and common sense. A self-controlled leader views life from God's perspective. He remains focused and he maintains right priorities. Paul is describing a man who is in control and in command of his mind. He exercises self-control in his thoughts, in his passions, and in his actions. Listen carefully. This man, this self-controlled man, does not allow his circumstances. He doesn't allow the immorality surrounding him or the foolishness of others to distract him, disqualify him, or deter him. 
He's sober-minded. He knows how to keep his head in all matters and all circumstances. He's prudent. He's sensible. He's stable. He's restrained. He has mastery over his emotions, over his actions, over his thoughts, and over his feelings. It's a reminder, friends. To be self-controlled is to win the battle for your mind. That's where it's won. It's won in your mind. That's why you need to pray that God will give you a sober mind. A self-controlled mind. A mind of restraint. It's why you need to saturate your life with the Word of God. By reading the Word. And praying the Word. And hearing the Word. And memorizing the Word. That's how you win the battle for your mind. And to be self-controlled doesn't just mean that You have your mind in check and your emotions in check and your right priorities in place. It also means that you don't engage in things that are immoral and unspiritual. It means that a self-controlled man or a self-controlled woman will avoid the things that are trivial and foolish and unproductive. You won't waste your life away. You see it as a gift from God, as a thing that is to be stewarded properly. And you exercise self-control. Do you want to know how important this qualification is in the life of a leader and a Christian? Paul uses this word five times in the book of Titus. He uses it right here in chapter 1 and verse 8. In chapter 2, in verse 2, he uses it again saying that older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, and self-controlled. In verse number 5, he says that uh, the women are to be trained to be self-controlled. In verse number 6, the younger men are to be self-controlled. And then again in verse number 12, we are to be trained to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live a self-controlled life. And if the leaders of the church can't live a self-controlled life, how could we expect the congregation to live a self-controlled life? An elder must have self-control. He must have sound judgment. He must be able to exercise wise leadership because if he can't lead himself, he can't lead anyone else. And so you have to ask yourself how you're doing in leading yourself this morning. How would your employer answer that? Students, how would your teacher answer that? How would your spouse answer that? How would your family answer that? How would the congregation answer that? Number four, verse number eight. He must be upright. 
This word is a legal term. It refers to a verdict that's pronounced by a judge. And in this conduct context, it refers to the approval of God. And so objectively, this word upright, it refers to the righteousness and the approval of God applied to a person's life through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And here's what I mean by that. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3 that none of us are righteous, no, not one. That every single one of us are born into this world condemned by the wrath of God for our sin. We are born sinners and we are prone to sin. And until God intervenes in our life through the work of His Son, through the work of His Spirit, we will never be declared upright and righteous. We will always be declared unrighteous. But when we recognize what God's Son has done for us through His work on the cross by living a life of perfection that you and I could never live on our behalf, by dying a substitutionary death on the cross in our place for our sin, for our condemnation, and by rising from the grave victorious over sin, death, hell, Satan, and the grave on our behalf. Until we recognize that and turn from our sin and cry out to God to save us and have mercy upon us and make us right with Him and approved by Him, we will never be declared upright. But the moment we recognize our sin and trust in Christ and turn to Him and receive His gift of grace and salvation, God gives us His approval. And He makes us righteous. And He makes us upright. And then we can live subjectively in uprightness by doing right things. And so what Paul is teaching us here, friends, is that an elder must be saved. Now that's a novel thought, isn't it? It is helpful for the leaders of the church to be Christians. I know it seems absurd to say that. Can I just be honest with you and tell you in my 29 years of ministry, I truly believe in all my heart there's been seasons of my life with, where I have served with other people in leadership who were not Christians. They were good businessmen, but they weren't Christians. The leaders of the church must be Christians. They must be saved. They must be upright. And then, listen, out of their salvation, they do the right thing. That's why there's problems in leadership, because if you're not a saved man, how are you going to do the right thing? And so an upright elder sets the example for how others are to be treated. He treats others with justice and honesty and love and compassion. He's just in his decisions. He's impartial in how he treats all of the flock. He lives by the standards of God's word in his life. He strives to practice what he preaches. And an upright leader will never leave the congregation wondering how he feels about them. 
They will always know that he loves them and he cares for them and he's concerned about them and that he's for them. That's an upright leader. Number five, holy. To, to be holy means to be unstained, unpolluted. It means to be different. Uh, Paul is referring to an elder's relationship with God. That an elder is a man who seeks day by day to walk closely with God and please him in every area of his life. That an elder is a man who is committed to godliness and Christ-likeness. That he pursues a life that is untainted by moral pollution or stain. That his life is a reflection of the Christ who has redeemed him and the Spirit of God who lives with inside of him. He's devoted to what is good and he is devoted to what is godly. And he is devoted to God. And, and an elder should live his life in such a way that the congregation, listen to me, the congregation never has to wonder if he loves God and if he loves God's Word. That his love for God and his love for the Word of God should exude from his life. And the congregation would be able to say, not that he's a perfect man, but that he's a godly man. He's seeking God. He's pursuing God. He wants more of God and more of God's Word. And friends, this isn't just for the leaders of the church. This should describe every single Christian. That as believers in Christ, we should have a desire for holiness. And one of the sure ways you know you have a desire for holiness is that you increasingly hate your sin. That the longer you live as a Christian, the more you hate sin and evil and wickedness. And that's how you know you're growing in your love for God and for holiness. By your hatred of sin. Do you hate it? Number six. He must be disciplined. Now listen carefully to me on this one. You could just overlook this one. And I'm going to say to you this morning, based on just meditating and pondering this word, this qualification, I think it's the most important one. And I think when you take this last qualification, discipline, and you marry it with the first qualification in verse number six, if you remember it, above reproach, it adds even greater weight. What is an elder to be? An elder to be, is to be above reproach, and he is to be disciplined in every area of his life. Do you know how a person becomes holy? Discipline. Do you know how a person becomes godly? Discipline. Do you know how a person becomes self-controlled? Discipline. Do you know how a person grows in their love and their affection and their care and their leadership for their spouse? Discipline. Do you know how they grow in their love and leadership and care for their children in their home? Discipline. Discipline summarizes 
all of the other qualifications. And when you marry it with above reproach, it is a powerful, powerful emphasis. You must be disciplined in every area of your life or you're going to have a hard time being above reproach. So what does it mean to be disciplined? It means to be self-controlled in your appetites and your actions. You're not a slave to your desires, your drives, your appetites. You have mastery over yourself. You have mastery over your passions. You have mastery over your words and your emotions and your actions and your impulses. And you bring them all under the control of the Word of God and the Spirit of God. An elder is to live an exemplary life on the outside because he submits to every area of his life on the inside to the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Listen to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. This is what Paul told Timothy about discipline. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train, some translations say, discipline yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The disciplined pastor walks with God in the integrity of his heart. He has the continuing grace of God working in his life to the degree that he is growing in spiritual maturity and moral purity. He doesn't lead a careless life or an impure life. A man who leads a careless life or an impure life uh, loses the right to lead others. I would tell you that discipline is the word that sums up the Christian life, friends. Do you want to know why you may be struggling this morning in some of the areas you are struggling in? I would tell you to first of all ask this, yourself this question. Have you given up discipline? Discipline is the rail that the Christian life runs on. You discipline yourself to be in the Word of God on a daily basis. You discipline yourself to pray the Word of God. You discipline yourself to not let broken relationships linger and go and become a festering and a point of contention and bitterness in your life. You discipline yourself to make those things right. You discipline yourself to extend and exercise forgiveness. You discipline yourself to show grace and mercy when other people have offended you and treated you wrongly. You discipline yourself to treat others the way that you would want to be treated. Every single area of your life as a Christian can be summed up under discipline. Are you living a disciplined, focused, devoted, determined life? Or is it a life that is being lived by your emotions and how you feel? And don't you understand that your feelings will deceive you? You feel great today, so your Christian life is great. And Monday's coming, and you're going to get up Monday morning, and it's going to feel like Monday morning. And you're not going to do so great because you don't feel so great. 
And what discipline does is tells how you feel to get in line and get in check and submit to discipline and submit to the Word and submit to the Spirit. And so then the discipline controls your life, not your emotions and how you feel. Your emotions will deceive you. How you feel will deceive you. And the reason why you're struggling with some of your bad decisions and the consequences of those decisions is because you've made those decisions based on how you feel and emotion instead of discipline and fact and truth. That's why a leader must be disciplined. How in the world can a leader exercise discipline over the flock if he can't even discipline himself? So friends, with all of these qualifications, it is clear that elders are to be men who are involved in a lifelong pursuit of these characteristics. A man doesn't just get these things and arrive and put on the brakes or the cruise control and just coast. This is a lifelong pursuit of these characteristics. And their character should match their calling. And so I ask every man who is in leadership, and every man who aspires to leadership in the church, are you pursuing these things? In congregation, as I've already mentioned to you in previous weeks, elders are to set the example and the pace for the life of the church. And so if you have leaders who are in a lifelong pursuit of all of these characteristics, I have to ask you, are you in a lifelong pursuit of all of these characteristics? Or have you become distracted and disobedient and discouraged in your pursuit of God? If the leaders are pursuing these things and you're to follow their example, shouldn't you be pursuing them as well? Well, I want to show you one final truth in verse number nine. We move on from the character of leaders worth following to the charge of leaders worth following. All of the qualifications that Paul has mentioned in verse 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 have to do with spiritual character, the kind of leader a person should be. Now in verse 9, he finally gets to what a leader should do. And the language of this verse suggests that these are continuing functions of the leader. He should never move away from them. Three simple things in verse 9 he tells us that leaders should do. Number one, they are to hold firm to the word of God. He says in verse 9 he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The foundation for the effective teaching of the word of God is the pastor's own understanding and obedience to that word. And notice how Paul describes it in verse 9. He says he must. This is not an option. It's not if the leader feels like it. It's a must. The leader must hold firm to the word of God. To hold firm to the word of God is to strongly cling to it, to adhere to it. And Paul is reminding Titus and us that a faithful elder must strongly cling to the trustworthy word with fervent devotion and unwavering diligence. 
He's teaching us that the written word of God is absolutely trustworthy and it's absolutely sufficient. And that the word of God is not to be redacted or edited or updated or modified. It is the same message that Paul impressed upon Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He told him in verse 16 that all scripture is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And Paul is teaching us that pastors are to love the trustworthy word of God. The pastors are to have a high view of Scripture, that they're to respect the Bible as inspired by God and without any errors, that they are to affirm the Bible's authority and priority and sufficiency. And listen, all three of those are important. It's not just that the Bible is authoritative over our lives. It is. It's not just that the Bible should be the priority in the life of the church. It is, and it should be. It's also that the Bible is sufficient for every single area of our lives and for every single area in the church. And here's the problem. There's many who would affirm today the authority and the priority of the word. They would just deny the sufficiency of it. That the Bible needs their help to update it and make it more relevant to the church and to the culture. And I'm telling you this morning, based upon the authority of the word of God, the Bible is relevant. It doesn't need to be made relevant. When you read this book, it comes alive. Because it's inspired by the Spirit of God. And it's more accurate and up to date than any news feed you read this morning before you came to church. It is sufficient. We don't need anything else for the life of the church. It's sufficient for all of these things. And as a result, elders are to place themselves in their ministries. Listen, gladly and willingly and in full submission to the authority of the trustworthy word of God. And notice what the text says in verse 9. And they're to do this the way they've been taught. A pastor is not to be original. A pastor is not to be an inventor. A pastor is not to be glib. A pastor is not to be an entertainer. A pastor is a herald who stands up with the Word of God and the authority of the Word of God and says, this is what God says, whether you like it or not. That's what a pastor is. And an elder's spiritual leadership in the church is not built on their natural abilities. It's not built on their education. It's not built on their common sense. It's not built on human wisdom. It is built upon their ability to hold firm to the trustworthy word of God. And the truth of this word must be woven into the very fabric of an elder's thinking and living so that in turn it will be woven into the very fabric of the thinking and living of the entire church. And a man who doesn't hold himself to the trustworthy word of God is unfit to stand and preach it and teach it. So he must always hold firm to the word. Number two, verse nine, he must give instruction in the word. 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Listen, friends, because the word of God is trustworthy, those who teach and preach it should faithfully handle this word. The phrase give instruction means to exhort, to urge, to beseech, to encourage, to call alongside of for the purpose of giving strength and help. So you should come to church every single week expecting to be instructed, not entertained. Everybody loves to go to the circus. It's a question of whether or not you want to come and get instructed. That's the difference. And this instruction should be sound. It should be wholesome. It should be healthy. It should protect you. It should preserve you. It should nourish you. It should strengthen you. It should equip you. And an elder is to give this instruction in sound, healthy doctrine. That is their objective. That is what they are tasked to do by God. And I would say to you this morning that you should beware of any church, you should beware of any teacher, and you should beware of any ministry that de-emphasizes the importance of sound doctrine. That should be a red flag. I'm telling you this morning that doctrine is for life. And you want to have a sound life, you better build it on sound doctrine. Because you will live out what you believe. What you believe matters. And without adequate expression of the truth and the power of the gospel, families come apart, young people are led astray, compulsions control us, and despair grips us. That's why an elder must always give sound instruction. Finally, in verse 9, he must always rebuke with the word and also to rebuke those who contradict it. John Calvin, the great reformer, said that a church leader ought to have two voices. One that gathers the sheep into the fold and another that wards off and drives away the wolves. An elder is to have both voices. A voice that speaks to the sheep and a voice that speaks to the wolves. Pastors have an obligation to God to give their people an understanding of the truth that will create in them the discernment necessary to identify what is false. And look at the text in verse 9. Elders are to rebuke false teaching. They are to speak against it. And if you look in verse 11 of Titus chapter 1, Paul tells Titus, about false teachers in this passage and he tells Titus what to do with them and in verse 11 the very first thing he says to them to Titus is to silence them to rebuke them friends false teachers are enemies of sound doctrine false teachers are enemies of the gospel false teachers are enemies of God false teachers are enemies of the people of God false enemy False teachers are enemies of the church of God. And they must be rebuked. And they must be silenced. But in our day, to denounce false doctrine and false teachers, especially if the doctrine and the teacher is brought into the broader fold of evangelicalism, 
it is to be labeled unloving, judgmental, and divisive. I say it's to be discerning. I say it's to be biblical and do what God's word says to do. Rebuke those who contradict the truth. Do you know why this is important? Listen to 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Timothy, why, why are you to do this? Because the word of God is going to go out of season. It's not going to be popular. And Timothy, when it's not popular, preach it anyway. The word is sufficient, Timothy. It'll do everything that needs to be done in the church. Just stand up and preach it. You're going to stand before God one day and give an account of how you preach. So, Timothy, just stand up and preach the word, whether people like it or not. Why? Listen, verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. Do you hear that? The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They won't stay with it. They won't persevere in it. I would say it to you this way. The time is coming when it's going to cost you something for what you believe. And if you're just doing it because it's popular, because you want to fit in, you won't endure. You'll walk away. Because it never really gripped you to begin with. And they won't endure sound teaching, what will they do? They have itching ears, and so they'll accumulate teachers to suit their own passions. That's why there's so many churches in the city of Wheeling who have capitulated on homosexuality to try to stay relevant because of the itching ears of the people who go to the church. The church, oh, the church doesn't determine what comes from the pulpit. God does. They accumulate teachers for themselves to suit their own passions. They turn away from listening to truth and they wander off into myths. They wander off searching for their best life now. They wander off sitting under Joyce Meyer so they can feel really good. She's a false teacher. Joel Osteen is a false teacher. When are you going to stop saying that those people are false teachers? When you stop listening to them. That's when. You wander off into myths. Wander off into what feels good. And listen to how he ends. But as for you, Timothy, remain sober-minded. Remain self-controlled. Keep your head. Keep your discipline. Keep your focus. Do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry. That's it. That's what an elder is to do. So that is what the church will do. That's why everything rises and falls on leadership. All of it. Friends, you must always remember that a leader who truly loves you will put your eternal destiny before your present comfort. And they'll challenge you and they'll rebuke you if you're walking on the wrong path. And do you know why an elder should do this? 
two reasons. Number one, Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 17 says that when the chief shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, comes, every single elder is going to stand before him and give an account for every single soul that they watched over. That's how valuable your soul is. God's going to give an, make the, every elder give an account. And secondly, you know what Paul said to the Colossians at the end of Colossians chapter 1? My whole goal in my life and ministry is to present you mature in Jesus Christ. I'll illustrate it to you this way. One day, let's just say Jesus comes back tomorrow. And I'm standing before him. He's going to say, Darren, you pastored First Baptist Church for over 19 years. Let's talk about all those souls that were under your care. Let's start with the letter A and go down through. And do you know what the reward is on that day? To say, Jesus, here is Miss Kledeshuk. I present her to you mature in Jesus Christ. Not because of anything that I did, but because the Word of God did the work. That's it. That's it. So the church needs its shepherds to preach, teach, and celebrate the gospel to love, live by, and grow in the gospel, to be disciples that are shaped by the gospel, who make disciples shaped by the gospel. All for the good of the people of God and for the glory of God. And our prayer should be that God would give us these kind of leaders. And that the leaders of the church would pray that God would make them these kind of leaders. Let's pray.